as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Jack Butcher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Vance. Good to be here. So, Jack, you are not uh, on video right now because your bandwidth is so far down, but I wanted to have you on the podcast because you are an extraordinary person out on social media. You have uh, become a sort of stoic poet and artist that has taken concepts of stoicism and put them into a visual medium that uh, really blows people away and captures them to have discipline in times of need. And I think there's probably no time on earth right now then people need to have discipline. So I am grateful that uh, you're here today. Thank you very much for having me. So, um, Jack, tell us a little bit about your background. Where Where are you right now? And uh, and kind of what's going on with your work and, and how coronavirus is impacting you? Yeah, so I am in Brooklyn, New York, which uh, for anybody listening to this is probably aware that this is close to the epicenter, at least in, in the States. So there's a lot of talk of what's happening with coronavirus in and around where I am. Um, there's been, uh, I'm, I'm in a building of about a hundred apartments, I think. So again, the reason why I'm not on video at the moment, everybody in my building, I assume almost everybody is working from home. So doing their thing over webcam and Skype and things of that nature. And, um, yeah, I've been inside for two weeks, I think. At this point, we've got a, a dog, so we're we're taking him out a couple times a day, being careful with that. But essentially, been inside for a couple of weeks, um, which is, you know, it's got its unique challenges, but it hasn't been hasn't been uh, unbearable just yet. So, talk about your how you came to know coronavirus was going to be a big deal. Was this? I mean, if you've been in for two weeks, that's longer than the norm. So, what made you shelter before other people? Yeah, the definitely the Twitterverse for sure. So I have uh, you know the type of people that I've curated my feed around on Twitter. I think they're all either they they a lot of them deal in risk. I think so VCs and mathematicians and all of those characters that make a living from understanding risk were kind of sounding the alarm bells on this thing a lot earlier than the uh, I. I also, I don't have any uh, traditional media in my house, particularly. I don't have a TV license or anything like that. So I don't watch TV necessarily. Um, but just learned really early on, even way back in January, and started to sort of bring out to my wife, like, this thing is uh, something pretty wild going on. And, um, you know, when I first heard of it, I was kind of, honestly, last week of January, maybe, I started thinking, I need to think about what it's going to look like if we're stuck in the apartment for a couple of weeks. Did consider, you know, maybe even getting out of New York for a few weeks, uh, but decided in the end to, to stick around and just stock up and try and uh, make as little contact with the outside world as we could for the for the uh, the point in time where I thought it was going to make a big difference. And um, at this point, just so many conflicting narratives and so many different stories and ways to perceive what's going on that we just sort of you know, ended up just uh, doing as much as we can to stay inside until we get a clearer picture of what's going on, honestly. Yeah, I mean, we were in pretty much the same way. And, and uh, in international relations, they always have this uh, phrase that says, where you stand on an issue is determined by where you sit. 
and meaning what is your job? And for a while there, my job mm. has been for years to travel around the country, really North America, and yeah. uh, give talks. And uh, I realized after watching my uh, several people on Twitter um, that I was basing my my uh, belief on what was going to happen with coronavirus with how it would impact my business as opposed to stripping mm-hmm. away all the details and saying, no, no, what's what's really going on here and what's the best way to prepare? Right, right. Yeah, that's I mean, that's been true of of, of um, my work, too. So there's. A couple aspects to what I do that have been affected by I have corporate clients that are in the event business that have, you know, changed their timelines for delivering certain projects and things of that nature. I work with the automotive industry, which obviously has been massively impacted by supply chain issues and things uh, things out of their control, like across continents and and uh, even on the on the smaller project side, the, the visualized value project, which is, you know, pretty much the description you gave in the intro, this idea of building a brand that helps people navigate the world and visualize these certain different concepts. There's, there's definitely, um, there's definitely an impact to what we sell in times like this, because just the, the outlook of people changes slightly and, uh, you know, people's priorities shift to, uh, preservation and survival mode as opposed to you know what you might class as a uh, a luxury purchase or you know something that you something outside of the or sorry sorry something higher up the maslow's pyramid shall we say yeah i mean what 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 is considered a need to have changes when you're faced with the pandemic i noticed last night i've been trying to watch mainstream news because it's really valuable to me to know what are millions of people hearing about this disease? And I think maybe the most shocking thing that I've noticed, because I haven't watched TV in probably five years, maybe 10 years, I don't know, but mm-hmm. is the commercials and how some of them haven't adapted. So all their commercials seem right. completely disjointed from society. You see people shaking hands or hugging <laughs> or, and it feels weird. Good web lobster. Yeah. And yeah, then wow. you have the other ones that have reacted. Like I saw a Ford commercial where they were like, don't worry, you can buy a car and, uh, you know, the first three months, you don't even have to worry about those payments and we'll pick up the next three months. So you have six months of no payments. And by the way, now you can buy the car pretty much all online. And you're like, whoa, that is a big shift from the car, the car dealership model that we have in the U.S. here. And that's people adapting to change what purchases people are making. That is that is phenomenal. Yeah, I think. um I've been somewhat uh, geared to operate independently of human contact for quite a while now. So worked either out of my apartment or out of a small office in the city, which essentially is a, you know, is an address and a place to just change routine. But all of the, uh, all of the interactions that I have with clients and customers are remote for the most part. So um, it's been interesting to see how, I think I'm not sure how how much of this narrative you've been exposed to, but it's just so funny coming from the corporate world. How much of what I used to do was sort of role playing in a sense. You're sort of like running around performing tasks that have very little value. It's just like it's a bizarre like um, 
x-ray onto who's actually doing stuff who's producing stuff who's responsible for making things happen and who's just sort of showing up and logging into meetings and you know making I mean, sure I, that I, they're I have thought this for, I, did you ever read that uh, account where the guy talked about bullshit jobs and about how I did, I did. I forget the guy's name, but it was a great. Read. Yeah, and he's basically <laughs> saying, you know, we think automation is only coming for factory workers, but really, in reality, it's come for all these office workers who it used to take forty hours a week to do their job, but now that you have email and instant communication, those jobs aren't as needed. And I think that this uh, pandemic is going to lay that bare. Because there are a lot of people that can work from home, but there are a lot of people that their services are not really needed. And so they're not doing anything at all at home. Yeah, I think the whole this has been like a theme of some of the stuff I've been exploring for the last couple of weeks. This whole idea of proof of work is like brought to every field in a moment like this. It's like you have to put forward proof for what you're capable of. I think even in the medical community, even more, that's even more. Uh, highlighted right now is like if you can come up with a solution quickly and prove that it works then we'll get it where it needs to go now i think that thesis that way of thinking is is going to sort of trickle into every aspect of industry it's just um there's there's very it's very difficult to hide when you're you know when your team is distributed and you sort of assign responsibilities somebody has to do this somebody has to make this happen and uh, it's just uh, it just adds a whole lot more accountability and transparency. And I think you're right. There's going to be a, an enormous change in how work is done and how people, you know, how people have to develop skills and like create value at, at its core. I think that's what it's about. It's yeah, like and I, I how think that- the the people that I, so I heard the other day somebody really worried about being bored during this coronavirus and it made me almost like lose my mind because I was like bored. <laughs> I have never what been busier been in my entire life because everything was laid clear about what your priorities have to be right now. And you think about the people that are saying, Hey, I'm laid off. I'm going to go home and watch Netflix for hours and hours and hours versus the guy that figures out, I'm going to figure out some kind of project, some kind of skill to build. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get on mm-hmm. Skillshare. I'm going to learn. But I think there are going to be a lot of people that wait two, three, four weeks before they start jumping in and, right, and learning right. the new skills. Yeah, and and yeah, you're going to come out on the other side of this, and that contrast is just getting dialed up every single day. the The longer you wait, the because this is kind of creating this massive amount of competition at the same exact time. You know, so even these small increments of progress that are getting made by people that you know, are a candidate for what you do, like you're falling behind by not, it's this just this idea of privilege that you've got this position that you sort of show up to and money appears in your account every couple of weeks. The, the, uh, what is the, I think it's a Taleb quote. It's like, there are three addictions that like the three most dangerous addictions in, in for humans are carbohydrates, a heroin and a monthly salary. You heard that one? <laughs> no, it's probably true. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Just the complacency that that puts on you. And I, I've been there. I'm not criticizing anyone in uh, specifically, but it's just a, the mental shift that you make when, you know, you're on a payroll and you just expect your, um, 
you know, your, your plan to be laid out for you or the initiative that you need to take to be dictated to you, that's all going to change. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I'm sure you, I've, I've seen stuff that you've put up that's about this. So for people that don't know, Jack has, uh, he puts out this constant stream on his own Twitter feed, Jack Butcher, but then he also has this Twitter feed, Visualize Value. But then he has also started a community of people that he's getting together regularly. And Jack, you wouldn't know this, but I have two very good friends, two young guys that I really respect, uh, Michael and Joseph Ring, the Ring brothers, and they joined your group mm-hmm. and they have said extremely positive things about what you're doing and for me those two guys are some of the hardest working people in america they're running a feedlot their their parents died when they were very young they figured out how to do bootstraps so if they respect what you're putting together there it's it's really valuable but that leads me to my point of um you you got to be out there solving problems because if you mm-hmm. are not solving somebody else's problem uh, one, you're not creating value, but then two, that is how you decide what skills you need to learn. It's like, hey, I'm going to try mm-hmm. and solve this problem that somebody else has that they're going to be willing to pay me for, but I don't know how. So now I've got to figure it out. That's where skill building really happens. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, the, I think one of the common traits of the people that have joined that community is they've kind of got that idea has clicked in their mind. You know, it's like they're on the journey to develop, like work backwards from the solution. And I think we've had the luxury for a long time of not having to do that. You just can kind of say, you know, I'm a, I have this skill or I call myself this and I, the onus is on everybody else to come and find me and give me something to do. That's not the way the world is going to look after this. It's going to be, yeah, the people who lead with solutions and the people that can, you know, prescribe and uh, solve problems that exist and frame problems in a way that make people understand why they exist and how they get fixed are the people that are going to do well at the end of this. But like just that whole that whole it's like, a, you know, you could talk about bubbles in the context of finance, but there's also like bubbles in the context of skill and culture and all that all of those things that have just been overvalued for so long that when we get, you know, you have this moment of contrast where you just like everything you thought was, um, the way the world worked is, is just flipped on its head. And that changes the, the relationship you have with, um, with all of your employees, with your clients. And it just makes you look at things a lot differently. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I noticed is that this pandemic, so I've been talking about how it, it, it you have an emergency like this and it kicks open the doors of the Overton window. So ideas that were radical or even unthinkable a week right. ago are now being floated, right? Like certain countries have dealt with, uh, we have prisoners and we're afraid they're going to get coronavirus. We don't, we can't leave them in there to die or to riot. So let's let them out. If you had told people mm. a week ago that that was going to happen, right. it, it, it would have blown their minds. But that same thing is exactly what's going to happen with the new work environment. And as much as the government is trying to pump money in to preserve the system as it was, that's gone. It doesn't matter how much, how much money you put into the system. Things will radically change. Let's say you bail out the airline industry. There's no way they're going to bring their employees back in the same Mm. way that they were before. Agreed. Yeah. And, and I think it's like a firmware reset in people's brains, right? The, the, customer behavior and like the way people the people's model of the world has just changed and there's no um 
there's no walking that back. There's no like package or posturing that can change like people's experience in in that moment from you know understanding the world working this way to experiencing it that way like there's always that possibility and there's even you know the possibility you would consider even more extreme events in the future like this is a primer for all of those things that could potentially happen as well as well as it is like a uh, sort of an alarm of how fragile a lot of systems were already yeah, my my uh, so I, I worked for Monsanto for many years, and when I came to Monsanto, I was very suspicious of large scale agriculture. But then, when I was involved in it, when I would go to large scale feedlots or uh, large scale agriculture, I saw the beauty and the really the majesty that that is large scale agriculture for civilization. But now facing this pandemic, I realized, wait a second, there is a yin and a yang. And if you, mm-hmm. uh, what you sacrifice in order to have efficiency is localization and diversification. You don't want to make that trade off all the way to one because either one of those two things is too far into extreme. And I had definitely gone to the bigger is better, uh, extreme and, and it was right. a mistake. I'm having to reevaluate yeah. that in a deep way now. Wow. Yeah, that's, I mean, true of industries that I've worked in as well. I think you know, less providing less of an essential function to society. I started my uh, career in advertising, and essentially the bigger the company, the less effective it was. Uh, that's a pretty solid rule of thumb. And uh, like I now, you know, company of one, and uh, have had radically more success and uh, traction in in just really honing in on a single problem to solve and building reputation around solving that problem in the same way that you know i think small businesses have great relationships with their like physical small businesses sorry like you know if you're uh, supplying food to a small community you have an incredible relationship with that community and people start to understand and respect the uh the work that goes into it and yeah i think i i think you know net positive in the long run it's painful painful process but um i think there's also something great about this moment that if i were i'm trying to put myself in the shoes of myself 10 years ago uh the idea that choosing a career um when there's when there's this kind of fabricated version of of uh, like a bulletproof economy or just this idea of like making things as big and as uh, globally dissipated as possible. Like there's a whole generation of people that just took jobs they didn't care about for that reason. Is that you tracking with that? Oh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, like I know the experience of going out to be an entrepreneur. I've done it twice. And mm-hmm. uh, the first time I did it because I just, I was kind of frustrated with the way corporations worked and, and I just, I didn't know what to do. So I was, I went out on my own. But the second time I had a path for me inside of corporate America, but it became clear to me after having seen the, the leadership or how, how the overall structure was. Your job may be more secure in the sense that you're going to get two weeks notice before you get laid off. But that's all the more secure it is. And everything else is an illusion. The company has every reason to convince you that, you know, we're a family and we're going to be together. 
but that's not true. And so being out, being an entrepreneur is a level of risk, but it's actually not that much more of a risk than being for a corporation. Cause I now don't have to wait for somebody else to tell me whether I'm employed or not. I'm, I'm out solving problems. And if I can get somebody to pay me, bang, I'm on board. Yeah. I'm going to have to follow up with the the guy that I heard this from because I can't remember his name, but, um, it was, it was put eloquently, I think on a podcast somewhere, uh, it's a guy, I think it was a, I think it was a venture investor and he said, entrepreneurship is actually risk reduction. You know, we're in the business of reducing risk, whether that's, you know, for ourselves or for the people that we're solving problems for. So it's an interesting reframe on entrepreneurship. And my experience of it honestly has been, uh, that same thing in just a sense of, you know, you have a sense of security as a, as a member of a massive corporation that you have a fat salary and, you know, it's consistency and when it's delivered. But I would, I would argue now that after having put some time into like publicly investing in you know, putting yourself out there and showcasing the problems that you are capable of solving builds this like complete, like a much more um, robust audience and like, career over the long term i'm pretty confident at this point that i have enough connections to enough people that you know even if i stopped today there's like so much equity in the relationships i've built over the last year that i don't worry about you know getting work for the next x period of time there's like people view it as a risk to be sort of building up this um this audience or this brand around their name outside of their corporate connection or whatever it might be. And I think in a lot of cases it's discouraged, you know, when you have that tie to company X, you don't go and put yourself out there and build an independent relationship yeah, they don't want with an you audience. To. That's you're, right. you're a part of a corporation, the corporate body, the corporate, like, but not your body. They don't, they don't want right. your brand, right? Unless you're opinions, the CEO. Like, even then. Opinions are not that, opinions are not that of my employer, that little bio, <laughs> uh, disclaimer. For a while Which, there, I had the thing in there. The, the, um, tweets are endorsed by my employer. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's so funny. I just like, there's something interesting about all the different social networks. One observation that I made over the last year or so is if you um you see people on linkedin for example which is essentially a corporate social network and the like the conversations are so much different from something like a twitter right where you have this completely open network of people that for the most part at least in the way my feed is constructed are representing themselves or representing a business that has given them the keys to say whatever they want to say. It's uh, it's pretty stark difference. And I think a lot of people, when they go out and try and generate business for themselves, if they start on the other, that you know, you start on either side, the outcome is is drastically different because the way people think and the environments that they're conditioned to, uh, you know, perform in are so different. I have a like an interesting anecdote. I, won't name any names from the last week or so where uh, I was approached to help on a project that like these uh, corporate agencies were like trying to come together to build something to help small business in this time of need. Right. And in like in application, they don't have the 
skill set, the experience, the like processes in place to do anything useful. Honestly, you'd be better off just cutting a check to somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and it's just it's fa- it's really fascinating. And like you're you're like I think this will be you know as unfortunate as the circumstances are. Hopefully, this will be a catalyst for people to find something to work on that is, you know, that has them solving problems by definition. It's like you can't really, you can't really survive as a business or a product or a service uh, independently if you don't solve problems. But you can, you can coast along for twenty years inside a a business of at scale doing pretty much nothing. I, those days are over, I would imagine, or close to. Yeah, I think so. There's a guy on Twitter that I started following that uh, is believes that the whole internet marketing, the the click through rates, and the amount that people are paying for ads is driven by by millions, if not billions, of bots. And he mm-hmm. has been fascinating to watch because if he's correct, there are armies of people at. PR companies inside of corporations that are sitting there trying to get clicks, doing whatever they can to get the the thumbs up for the social media posts on, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for their corporate pages. And in effect, all they're doing is digging a hole and then filling it back in every single day because their work yeah. doesn't mean anything. And, and it's a certain kind of torture because I did a job to pay for graduate school. I was offered uh, an assistantship where they paid for all of my graduate school if I did this media relations job, which in effect was to um, decide how much was it worth that we got this mention in the New York Times and this mention mm. in the in the Star Ledger. And if, if it was this many column inches, then how much would that cost in advertising? So now we can relate getting our professors in the newspaper with making money. So all day long for 20 hours a week, I would calculate by column inch how much that would be worth for advertising to write a report that somebody thumbed through for maybe 20 <laughs> seconds and then threw away. And they gave me a graduate education for it. Oh, my God. It's incredible. Honestly, they're just like. And there is just, I mean, if the American economy or the global economy even was a pie chart, the amount of people that are thumbing through papers in that pie chart is not an insignificant chunk. And producing content that is, or producing following processes that have no sort of bearing on the end result. It's just, it's just the incredible amount of bloat. And it's just fascinating to see like where this money will end up that, you know, we're sort of, directing at the problem but you know i'm i would love to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations now like people must be realizing would you i mean i think that's that i think that is realizing (laughs) the darkest shadow that people have which is they have known in the back of their minds for a very long time that what they were doing wasn't valuable but they didn't want to face it and and i mean like i know for me at those times in my life when I was like, I have to face this, it meant you were giving up something that felt certain for an mm. uncertain future. I think those, I think the being a fly on the wall in there is like, uh, is like going it down into the fiery pits of hell. And most people won't look at it until they're shoved into it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be uncomfortable. You're right. It's, uh, I think, yeah, I think it's going to be, 
it's going to be tough for a lot of people because they're just the way they think is um is sort of has just been warped by the interface that they have with the like the their contribution or their like uh yeah their contribution to the problem is not clear to them you know that or even the problem that they're solving is not clear to i've occupied roles in big businesses where i'm like what am i actually responsible for here um there's a great another great taleb quote i mean he's like He's been a big character in this, but he says, like, it's very hard to bullshit your way through life when you have a P&L. <laughs> That's right. Amen. Yeah, and it's like most most people, like, in a uh, in a corporation of a scale over, you know, a couple hundred people just are not – there's no tangible, like, KPI for what they're up to, you know. It's like there's no measure. There's no uh, – there's no way to – to get a sense of what a good quarter looks like versus a bad quarter or whatever else it is you're measuring. Like, I think people we've, we've sort of moved away from that idea of, you know, scrutiny being a constructive tool. And I think we've had the luxury of not being able to look at it for so long. You know, again, I'm not an economist, but for many reasons, you know, inflated money supply or easy lending or just like, I, a couple of years ago, I was walking around New York, and we, my wife and I went into this store, and it was a, a, a shop that sold sofas with USB chargers in it, in them. It was like <laughs> IKEA sofas with USB chargers in them that came in like three sizes or something. And I was like, what the hell is going on? How has somebody said, yeah, I'll cut a $100 million check to fund this business? It seems like it's a sustainable and brilliant idea. It was nuts. I was like, There's, there has to be, you know, too much money floating after too few goods. Yeah, it has to be twenty. Like for every, like even for every decent idea, there's like fifteen, twenty versions of it to the point where just like, like, how does this make any sense? How is this a sustainable way to, to, to go about like building, you know, a better version of what we have right now? Maybe like even this. Um, even a moment like this in culture is like you start thinking about the things that are essential to our survival, food and medicine and, um, you know, like the things that someone actually asked a question yesterday on one of the Twitter posts I put up that said like, what do you think of, um, Mark Zuckerberg's move fast and break things? It's like, yeah, you know, depends what you're breaking, right? The idea of like, if you're building a bridge or you're developing a, uh, like medical product, then move fast and break things is a pretty terrible way to think. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, one of the things that I that I have come to in the last few months uh, about when I'm interacting with people, whether or not they have a bullshit job, for me, often comes down to, is this a person that can do the negotiations? So, you know, if somebody hires mm -hmm. me to do consulting or to do speaking, um, the question becomes like, okay, if my price isn't one that they are immediately already authorized to, d to deal with, then how hard is it for them to negotiate? And one of the things that I've come to the realization of is the people that negotiate creatively are the ones that if they don't already have authority, they are the ones on the path to being giving authority because mm -hmm. they're able to think through problems. I think you'll appreciate this. So 
I decided like I want my wife is pregnant and I want to be able to have a steady supply of meat. I don't want to wait till my grocery store has the hours I'm available to go to or anything like that. So sure. I've been decided like I'm going to use um, alternative uh, like local suppliers of meat. Well, one of my um, uh, groups, the Arizona cattle producers decided they asked me to come give a talk and my price was way off of what their budget was. But over right. time, we came to the to the conclusion, hey, you guys have a lot of beef more than you have <laughs> yeah, money, nice. and I have a need for beef more than I need money right now. How about oh, every – you guys send me beef every um, – I was originally saying month. They said two weeks and write a letter of who whose farm that came from and tell me about it so that by the time the speech rolls around, you will have paid me in that meat and I will know more about Arizona cattle. The person that was running that negotiation with me, I would let her run any business I've seen. She that's was better awesome. than, you know, and like, and, and that's the scenario where she dealt herself in, she's just a lowly person in the, in the chain, mm -hmm. but dealt herself a much bigger hand because she was willing and able to figure out a creative negotiation. Yeah. I, and I think like for so long, the, the businesses that sort of make that or introduce opacity to like the mechanics and the dollars and cents of how the business works. That's where all the redundancy comes in. That's where you get the blow in, in my experience, like the more connected somebody going back to the P and L point, like the more connected somebody is to how, you know, X happens and where money goes to and from gives you an understanding of how the business works, allows you to like contribute to those conversations and do things more, efficiently and build better relationships and just think creatively because you know ultimately you're trying to turn this into something that you know everybody wins from we deliver a great solution and we make a good living doing it but so so many like such a huge percentage of a lot of businesses now just have no exposure to how the business works i think you know smaller businesses obviously do a better job of that but You've been, just been shielded from the economy that you're participating in, even as an employee of a business. And like this, this, why these kind of events just like completely blow your mind apart. Yeah, because the further you are away from where money is coming in the door, the more your job is political. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you are political. You may just be a pawn with mm -hmm. somebody. And then you take this situation and it shakes up the whole world so much that what was up and down and who was important. You know, your manager might have been a really political animal that really benefited right. you, but if they weren't delivering value, they're mm -hmm. not going to survive. Yeah. But I yeah, think I, that the... I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to echo what you're saying. I think the... Um, yeah, the those hard decisions will come down to, like, who, you know, the justification of keeping someone versus losing someone is going to be, you know, as brutal as it sounds, like, what are they worth? There's think, another great article I'll send to you. I think um, uh, the example that they use is, like, you know, a lot of people sort of swimming around, like, trying to find their purpose, and they're frustrated that, you know, they don't feel like um, – what they do align, what they do aligns with what they care about, things of that nature. And the example they use is like uh, the reason you're stuck and unfulfilled and frustrated is because you don't do anything useful. You're not useful. Like if there's somebody like in the street having a heart attack, who's valuable in that situation? The doctor, not the person who like has a 
you know, an idea of yeah. what they're all about. Yeah, yeah, it's just not helpful. So, like utility, I wrote something yesterday. It's like this: the this moment in time is sorting utility from futility. So all of these things that people have pursued for, like essentially, you know, they've seen somebody else be successful at something, or they've, you know, they're looking at the sort of end frame of something and trying to. Um, trying to emulate it without like reverse engineering the result they provide. Like you just end up in this loop of futile activity. And I think that creates more frustration than honestly just sitting around and trying to figure it out. You know, don't, what's the manga quote? Don't just, uh, don't just do something, stand there. (laughs) I think that the most hopeful thing out of this whole conversation that we have though, is that the reset button just got hit. And by the way, you just got a one month, you know, uh, block of time that you can do whatever you want with it. And everyone has the same 24 hours. Everybody has the same lockdown. Now, you may have different scenarios that you're coming into it, but there is a chance for you to go looking for problems in a way that you've never looked for them before. And if you find one that you're uniquely capable of solving... Bingo, you're now back in the game. You've just dealt yourself back into the global economy of which, you know, something is going to come from the ashes. Some people are going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it feels like the, the um, this kind of this divide that's happening in the middle where there is X amount number, like hundreds of thousands of jobs going to megacorp. And, you know, this other opportunity on the smaller side for you to like go hyper specific and dial in that one problem that you solve feels like the middle ground is the place that's going to get most disrupted. They're saying like, you know, I don't really know. We don't really know what we're about. We can do a bit of this, a bit of that. Like it feels like this is going to um, this is kind of a catalyst for sorting you into one of the two buckets, like go and work for Amazon or go and, you know, build something very specific that you can help business X or problem X, uh, be overcome. So I've got, uh, one more question for you, but before I go to that question, I want to give you a chance to invite people to, to your communities or how can people find more of your content? Because what you are doing, uh, I know has helped me. And I know, I mean, Jack, I would say that you, this, this podcast was one that I could go around and tell every single one of my friends that I was going to do. And I got back a fuck. Yeah. With lots of exclamation points because people love what you're doing. So how can people find you and, uh, and yeah, get involved with the communities that you're putting together. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, give a little plug. There's a couple ways. So Twitter, me personally is Twitter, uh, Jack Butcher and Visualize Value. The project you're referring to is just twitter.com slash Visualize Value. I have your book right up, Instagram. right above my head right there. I don't know if you can uh, see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. And, uh, you can, if you follow those couple of pages, um, there's a, a post fairly frequently about the community, but essentially, uh, there's a couple products that, that, uh, that support the Visualize Value brand. One is, a a a planner called the daily manifest, which is accompanied by this community access. So if you, if you, you get the planner, you get access to the community. We have weekly calls and, um, you know, we go back and forth and and try and help people figure out what they're, uh, you know, what they're going to, especially in this time, what they're going to emerge doing and how they can get more specific and prove their ability to solve problems and all those good things. Essentially, I'm trying to 
help people get on the track that I found through all of this experimentation that led to the creation of Visualize Value, which I look at as this um, this execution of all of the things that I've learned in these very different and disparate situations compiled into this thing that you know I uniquely enjoy and is like provides utility to a lot of people hopefully well i mean i know that every time i i need a something to focus me i go look at some of your seneca quotes or marcus aurelius or whoever else so i I love it um so my my final question and you're not allowed to dodge it a lot of people try and dodge this question because it's so difficult what is the world going to look like in two weeks in two weeks, I think I think there's yeah I, I don't know if this is a dodge, but it's, it goes one of two ways. I think I think there'll be uh, like a I was I was reading a couple studies last night. I don't know if you saw the Oxford University study that said fifty percent of the UK already has coronavirus. Have you seen that one yet? No, huh? I think it came out late last night. So uh, I think there'll either be like a total reversal, so kind of back to normal. This was like overblown panic and um, like the economic fallout will just continue as if, you know, the same thing happened. But I think that there'll be like an overcorrection in behavior or I think, you know, we're we're um, wearing masks for, you know, it's a criminal offense to not be wearing a mask in public. Those are my two options. Wow. Okay. All right. That's that's uh, that's an interesting assessment. Well, Jack Butcher, I know you are a very busy guy. Oh, I wanted. To, I'm sorry. Before we leave, you had mentioned something about WeWork uh, on Twitter, oh, yeah, and yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because I'm reading things on Twitter about it, but I'd like to get it straight from a user experience. What's going on there? Yeah. So uh, I have a space in a downtown. Uh, we work office in New York and y- you know, the governor of New York Cuomo has been saying for I don't know, a couple of weeks at this point or 10 days at this point, like shelter in place, non-essential businesses do not go into work. Like a hundred percent of non-essential businesses should be working from home right now to curtail the spread of this thing. Um, and we work as sort of like, you know, all every single every single company that I do business with uh, uh, on a recurring basis has basically reached out and said, "Hey, we pause your membership. Like you're not going to pay for a service you can't access. Thank you very much for being a customer, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. We work took the opposite stance and basically said, "We have essential business going on at WeWork, so we're not closing." And uh, you know, by definition, that sits a little weirdly with me. WeWork is essentially a you know a wi-fi connection and a coffee machine there's not like a distribution infrastructure or there's no business that operates out of we work that couldn't operate as a distributed team just by definition of the the, the uh the nature of the business yeah the nature of the business and what it provides you know it's just a, a mailing address a room and a desk so you know obviously we has been in some financial trouble for some time as it's been covered in depth by a lot of smart people and it feels to me like this is just a, you know, it's a death sentence for them. And it feels like they're just doing everything in their power to just sort of scoop up the last few dollars. And, uh, you know, they basically responded and said, well, you like the building's open if you want to go in. There's, none of our staff are going to be there. So they've they've taken their staff out of the 
out of the mix. But there was a, a memo that got leaked yesterday where they um, offered to pay their staff 100 bucks a day to go in, which is, I mean, it's just kind of an insane uh, situation where, um, and this is another good example, I think, of I don't know, man. That doesn't seem so insane to me. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, um, just, just to, from what I read, I watched, I read the New York Times article, uh, and, and like, they're a business and they're trying to keep people coming in. If you, if, uh, I, I don't mean to be impolite here, Jack. I'm just, I'm just no, curious no, no, to push sure. on the edges. I'm, like, I'm, I want to hear it. I like, hear if, it. if they, if you have a subscription service with them, right, that, that you're using an office and it's month to month or, over the year, if you don't like the way that they're handling it, just cancel. Um, maybe you're not allowed to. I don't know. But the offering yeah, people money to come in contract. is like hazard pay, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I get I mean, I get it from like a fundamental um, like, uh, yeah, incentive structure makes sense. I think the, the problematic part is like the guidance that's been given is like any any um any gathering of 10 people or more is problematic right and right. those buildings and the way that they're like the way that their offices are set up are these huge communal spaces where if people did follow that guidance essentially they would be like going directly against whatever the um okay whatever the guidance from cdc or the governor or whatever it's like you guys aren't exempt from the rules that everybody else is following that's the problem i have with it it's like I would love to, you know, have kept access to the office, but just it feels like their um, their defense is to um, is to say that our oh, essential businesses are operating out of WeWork, and I just don't buy that. I think, uh, like, just by its very definition, like it's a bunch of people on laptops that are, you know, conducting business remotely, and uh, I don't know. I think I, I think there would have been a there could have been a better response where like if you really cared about that and you uh, had a you know had a intention to keep numbers low and just have a sense of who's going to be coming in and out but there's not there is none of that there's no like there's no like how many businesses and how many people are going to be coming in and out of these locations it's just purely like hey our policy is we're going to keep charging you sorry i just don't think it's been very thoughtful response and i think like it's probably because they the you know the alarm bell is going off in the engine room and they're just like well why not just you know, oh yeah i mean these all these vc started just just like the the overblown corporations these vc funded or gigantic ipo funded businesses that don't have the infrastructure behind them they're grabbing every dollar they can because they they're in the hole i i think the essential services uh system that we have going on like in St. Louis, I believe it's going to cause social strife because I, I'm a I'm really reluctant to have these shelter in place things. Like in a place like New York, maybe you have to. I, I don't know. I, like using right. the force of law to suspend the First Amendment is really dangerous. I think maybe it's needed. I don't know. I don't have to make those decisions. But the fact sure. that they're giving some people exemptions and not others, so uh, some people are going to be sitting in their house watching their savings get burned in a furnace. While other people yeah, are going yeah. out and making money uh, in services that clearly are not essential, or at least you could make a really strong argument, this is going to cause social uh, div divisiveness, and eventually the government is going to be called to either ignore the law that they just created or enforce mm -hmm. it, 
which is probably worse. Yeah, and I think like I think what's overlooked and what is like a really difficult calculation to make because this is a first of its kind event is obviously there is fallout either way, right? Uh, and I think people have simplified this argument to like, oh, you you know you you're making a decision um, that is you know just kind of putting a value on a human life, but either decision you make is is essentially making that you know is essentially committing to that on either side of the issue do you know what i mean if oh, you're saying like stop yeah, yeah. and stop i think the I- economy from running people are going to be in like some pretty massive trouble in the same way that stay in your house people are going to be in massive trouble and i just don't think people are you know and I, i'm not qualified to comment on the ripple effect of of that uh in either circumstance but it you can't ignore one for the other I think uh, you're exactly right. And the the I think the greatest danger to individuals right now is not only the thing that we discussed where it's like, hey, use this time to build yourself something valuable. But then the other thing is that people are going to get into troughs of information where they just keep hearing mm. the same sources. They look different. They're on different channels or they're from different social media posts, but they're the same thing over and over and over again. So you begin to believe that that is what everybody else already knows and that it is because you've seen it so many times, absolutely true. And there's no way against it. And that's the challenge with public health. You've got to beat it into people's heads that they need to take it seriously. But if you beat it too far into their heads, you start uh, changing what the nature of what they know to be true. And that is, gets really mm-hmm. weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, yeah. It's, it's a fascinating time to be living through for sure. And like this, this probably, you know, I think election and political cycles was this huge uh, like catalyst for examining like, who can say what and what's true and what isn't. And something like this is just an even more stark example of like just how chaotic it gets and how different people interpret these things. Like I have conversations with some like different people in my network and like the difference in what they believe to be true and who they believe to be responsible is just so massive. And we've all sort of curated our own echo chamber to some extent, you know, nobody is, uh, Nobody is able to even find information that is completely without bias. And you, you know, every all of the different th- mental models that you've accrued as an individual change the way you interpret it too. So it's just, it's just the. Uh, yeah. yeah, and if you don't have somebody in your network that you really respect but you completely disagree with, you're, you're effed in this situation because that means right, you're in right. an, you're, you're you're in an information trough. And you can't get out of it. So you've got to find those people that you're like, damn it, you're totally wrong. But I do respect you. So I'm going to keep it. Jack, I could keep talking all day, but man, I want to let you go. But thank you so much. And uh, stay safe in New York. If things heat up, I'll have you back on again to tell us what's going on in New York. All right. Thanks, Vance. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. Good talking to you.